we will start today by putting Amy on the hot seat. Amy was um, in the working group that drafted MDCG 2019-9. So Amy, could you start by maybe sharing the thought process behind the document and how that all went? Hi, well, let's see. Um, I think the document came about because, um, so there was a, a, a very prominent clinician who was involved in a lot of European Commission working groups and, and professional societies. And he had an experience with um, a valve replacement that he had a lot of success with, and it was one that he used very frequently. And then they just changed the design slightly, um, and his patients started dying quite, you know, at very high failure rates. And he then wanted to find out, well, what, what happened? What's different about this device? You know, what was the evidence that supported it? And when he went to the notified body, um, he couldn't get any answers. And that's not because notified bodies are secretive or corrupt or anything like that. It's just that we're they're not allowed to, that's confidential information, they're not allowed to disclose manufacturer information. And the way the process works is that the notified bodies are mon monitored by the competent authorities that make sure that we're, they're doing the job appropriately. And that's how the system is kept in check. And he just thought this was completely unacceptable. You know, he, he said, well, why, you know, with drugs, I can see all the clinical investigations. I can see all the, the evidence. Why can't I see that with devices? So he kind of drove this and he wanted to have something like, you know, the, the FDA version of, of the summary of, of evidence um, for medical devices. And that then kind of drove the requirement for the SSCP in the MDR. And then of course, as you might imagine, he was also part of that working group as well that was helping draft how we explain what those requirements are, what, what is the philosophy behind it. So um, I think that the last thing I'd end on with that, the, the core philosophy behind the SSCP is that it's supposed to be trans given transparency to the clinician so that he understands why that it was considered this device could be safe and effective. And it's also supposed to be like where the patient SSCP is required, it's supposed to be providing, like empowering the patient is the language they used. So giving them as much information as they as is reasonable so that they can you know, make informed choices in, you know, in consideration with their doctor. Okay, thanks. Can you, you know, just for the sake of uh, the viewers here, so many of us don't know this, how did that document get approved? How, how does that work? Right. So there is um, an expert panel. Um, uh, there's many expert panels, but there's uh, one is the clinical investigations and evaluations expert group. Um, and I was a, a notified body representative on that panel. So there's manufacturers that are represented on there. You know, there are um, clinical learned societies that are represented. Obviously, the, the, all the competent authorities are represented um, and, and, and so on. So all these people are on that sort of expert panel. And then when, when requirements for guidance comes up, um, they can have subtask forces. And so those subtask task groups are set up and they draft guidance and then they go through various iterations. And then once they've got something that they're happy with, they bring it back to the CIE, which then will circulate it for wider consultation. So you get lots of feedback on that, on that guidance document. So when it goes out for wider, wider consultation, all the stakeholders have an opportunity to comment on it. And after however many iterations you finally come up with a document that's considered to be acceptable and it would be sort of compliant with the requirements of the MDR and providing that you know you can't expand on the MDR and you can't change the interpretation this would just supposed to be helpful and then after it's gone through all those consultations and all the questions have been either answered or accepted or rejected then it's presented to the MDCG which would then decide whether they were going to adopt it or whether they think actually there's a few more things you need to fix here is it is it difficult to write and like decide how much <laughs> level of detail should really be in there? Like how hard is it? It is. Um, yeah, I have to admit, writing these guidance documents is 
I mean, I love it. I really love being on all those different working groups, but it's also a very painful process because every single word gets scrutinized because there's a legal implication. So um, on this particular working group, I have to say, I, I really, I didn't want to like criticize structure or grammar or, or whatever. So I tried to focus on the regulatory aspects. Um, so I wouldn't sort of hang my hat on this particular guidance document as being a evidence of how I structure thoughts. Because obviously there were other, you know, there's probably about, I'd say eight of us on that working group. Um, but in, 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 in other working groups I've, I've participated in, and you think, right, here's, a, a, you know, here's my thought for the draft. And what you think is a tiny change can just, you, you can have literally, I've been in working groups where they've debated a single word for 45 minutes. <laughs> God, I'm going to die. But it's, it's important because there are, there are consequences and a word can change the interpretation of something. So it's a bizarre thing of being frustrating, but incredibly satisfying, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a great answer. Thank you, Amy. Okay, so moving on to the, the questions that have come in. Um, first of all, have, has anybody here written SSCPs? Have we started writing them? We have started writing them. <laughs> uh, and, and I will say they evolved. The ones written prior to that guidance being published are very different than the ones put, written after that guidance. Um, you know, and the first one we ever submitted was pretty high level written, mm -hmm. right, being very careful of how much detail we didn't want to give away all that confidential stuff that the manufacturer held really tight. And and it went through the process. Now, mind you, this was very early and the notified body still getting their feet wet, right? It went through pretty cleanly. What we've seen since the guidance came out is, is that they're not flowing quite so smoothly. <laughs> they really are taking the guidance to heart and really insisting that you know, all the detail that's called for, and you can tell it's driven by a doctor who wanted to know everything. <laughs> and that's really hard in manufacturers to share everything because nobody really wants to air all the dirty laundry in public, <laughs> but that's what it calls for. I think Which there was, go ahead. Oh, I mean, it, it actually, I think he wanted it to have a lot more information than what is in there, but. That's again where this kicks in that you can't use guidance to expand what's in the MDR. So, but I think actually he would have liked the entire technical file to be publicly available on Udemy. So, so it's, it's actually quite a lot less than he wanted, but it might be closer to what the doctors want. John, you said you've written some too. How's that gone? Um, yeah, so obviously, everybody's still in the early stages of writing these things. And, you know, uh, so I would say it's been a varied experience as far as like what level of detail the client wants to include or doesn't want to include. There's some that we've had a whole lot of detail. And then like Nancy mentioned, there's some that there's very little detail in there. Um, and I think it remains to be seen what the right level of detail is. I think the ones that we've written that has a whole lot of detail probably is too long to be honest and maybe not uh, capture the transparency that maybe Amy and the working group were hoping to get out of it because if it's a very long document with each study summarized separately, it can get almost too much and I think maybe defeats the purpose to some extent. So it should be interesting to see in those cases how the notified body validates those SSCPs and whether or not they ask for less detail um, in them. John, so if I could, if I could challenge. For sure. Mm -hmm. I could chime in here. 
with any new piece of report or documentation, um, things will evolve. There are people who are going to come in below what notifier bodies want, and others will go beyond it. I think almost like um, at the beginning of writing CERs, I think they've been adequately calibrated, and I'll suggest that we kind of hit the mark almost every time we write a CER. I think this is going to evolve as well because the notifier bodies are learning mm -hmm. as well. But as a general rule of thumb, I think it will be um, advisable for the manufacturers to truly follow the guidance that's been written. Keep in mind, part of the reason they wrote this guidance is to make sure everybody reports it in some consistent manner. That way the authorities in Europe can run reports. Right now they are flying blind. We just heard Amy tell mm -hmm. us about this particular doctor, and I'm sure there are a few other doctors who want everything out there. You know, so it's it's always striking that balance. Yeah, I think in going back to the CER, I think where the CER is really well written and there's a lot of analysis and summary, it makes it a lot easier to write the SSCP because huh. you're you're really extracting just that analysis that was done Correct. for the CER. And if if you have a really bad CER, that's where you start with that. I'm just copying what study was done. I'm not getting to that analysis piece or I'm not tying it in between the three studies and how they all work together to prove you know the performance. Yep. A question from an audience member. Um, says, when it comes to quantification of clinical benefits and residual risks, how much information would you expect an SSCP to include? What kinds of information do you include to support, for example, comparison with the soda? Thank you. Who wants it? That's a really good question. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I'll, I'll take a stab at it, and then maybe, maybe Amy can say what the intention was, right, as far as what they were mm -hmm. thinking. But... So over time, we've learned that the CER has to have a specific and measurable outcomes, and they have to be related to your indications in the benefits that you are claiming. And so your CER should first and foremost outline what your benefits are, and then highlight what the outcomes that you're going to use to evaluate to support those benefits. Yeah. And so then you would in some cases, let's say it's revision rate might be the benefit that you're looking, no, that's not a benefit, but let's say that's one thing that you're particularly interested in. So I would in that case say, okay, here is, we're going to look at revision rate. And then you would look at revision rates for similar devices and explaining this is what the typical revision rates we see. And then you would provide the summary of the revision rates for your specific device. And so I think it needs to be tied back to those outcomes that you've outlined in your CER, which is easier said than done for some products, for sure. I don't know, Amy, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think also this, this ties back to the whole transparency thing. So they don't want kind of generic broad brush stroke statements like, you know, we get excellent survivorship or we have, you know, um, great mobility or whatever the, the thing might be. It's what does the device intended to achieve? How do you know that it achieves it? How do you know that it does it well in relation to the, the state of the art? And I want to see the specifics because this is all about transparency. So, yeah, I, I'd, I'd agree with you on that. Yeah, and I would say where we don't put quantitative numbers in, right, and we try and leave it that qualitative, we do get questions back on it. Of course. And, and we get asked to add the numbers. Yes. Remember, it's trust but verify. 
<laughs> Provide the objective evidence. Tell your story, always. Okay, so when does the first SSCP need to be done? It needs to be with your initial submission. So you need to have your SSCP when you submit your documentation for your MDR certification. Yeah. And who, who in the organization should be writing it? You know, is it regulatory? Is it clinical? It's an interesting question. I think as long as the CER has been written by people with the right knowledge and competencies to write the CER, and whoever extracts the data has the skills and qualifications and experience to extract it in a way that is relevant and compliant and doesn't distort the evidence so that it, you know, that it, it look, it's not an accurate presentation of what the clinical evidence actually is. I don't think they've specified who, who it needs to be, but I know that you, you've had questions about why hasn't the PRRC signed this off? And, and the reason for that is because the responsibilities of the PRRC is, is to include that you know, they're responsible for the regulatory outputs. So it's not that, I mean, I, I can't speak for all notified bodies, but it's, it's, I think it's not necessarily that, say, a PRRC has to write it or even sign it off, but if they haven't, you need to explain how in your quality system they maintain that overall responsibility. So if they've delegated that to somebody else, why has that person got the qualification? So, so I think there's a qualification check in there, but it isn't exactly defined what that should be. So Lisa, yeah. it may well be a joint effort here where the actual hands-on work is done by the clinical team, you know, typically. And then the regulatory group kind of maybe extract or review what has been extracted to, to kind of write the SSCP. And possibly the PRRC person checking that everything is kosher before sending it on to the notified body. I mean, I think, I think the MDR and IVDR for that matter, increasingly demand um, interdependencies. None of this uh, business about manufacturers being set up in silos. You've got to talk to each other. If you don't talk to each other, things may fall through the cracks. So you've, you've made me think of uh, a related thing. Um, <laughs> so we've had a few, um, we've had a few uh, SSCPs that uh, manufacturers have asked us to do gap analyses on. Like, what do you think? What do you think the notified body will think of this? And the ones I've seen so far, they use very regulatory type language. It's like talking about compliance to standards and 13485 and 19971 and all this kind of stuff. And the feedback, you know, I keep going is this is not, this is, although, yes, it's a regulatory document, it's not a regulatory communication document. It's a communication with clinicians and patients document. So the language really should reflect the intended audience, which is the patient and the clinician. And where the regulations comes in is you need to make sure that that summary is not distorting the evidence and complies with the regulations and the guidance. Yeah, and, and kind of how we set up our system is we have the medical writers who have worked on the clinical evaluation, if the project's set up this way, write the initial draft of the SSCP. Yep. That's then reviewed, as Ibum kind of mentioned, by uh, a regulatory person so that they can make sure that it's meeting the re regulatory requirements. And they're also usually a little bit more accustomed to providing like a uh, review of labeling or instructions for use and things like that, that would be presented to the public. And so that's how we've structured it. And uh, we've I've seen other instances where either a post-market person would try to write it or a regulatory person would write it. And I, th I don't think it's very efficient because I think when they're writing it, they say, well, why isn't the writer who wrote the CER writing this? And so, which is a very valid thing to say. And so I think 
that probably the people that should be writing the first draft. Yeah. Yeah. But I think right to your uh, everyone's point, it's it's not just an individual though, because this is going to be a public document. So a lot of places are putting it through just like they would labeling. So they're getting a legal review on it within their organization. They're getting a regulatory, they're getting, you know, all the groups. And and that makes for an interesting dynamic, right? Because marketing's perspective on an SSEP and what they want to tell the world about their product is very different than a technical medical writer who's focused on the, the medical aspects. So when does the SSCP have to be written for both the layperson and medical professional? And and when you do have to write it for a layperson, like how how do you validate that? And do you have to translate it for them? Like, well, how does that all work? So the um, SSCP for layperson is required for any, um, essentially any implantable devices except for the ex you know, the exempted devices in Article 52.4 or any Class 3 devices that are used directly by the patient. So that's when the patient SSCP is required. Was that the whole question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so how do, you, how do you validate that it's good enough for oh. a layperson? Yeah, so it, it does have guidance in there. And it, it, it says um, that you should validate, you basically make sure that the patient understands um, the content of it, um, that is readable and understandable to the patient. And then it, it suggests, it says, for example, by means of a, of a, of a, a questionnaire or something like that, it links to um, the guidance for um, readability, um, sort of clinical investigation summaries for laypersons, which was guidance I think was drafted for the pharmaceutical industry. So it gives you all these links, but then it says um, the manufacturer may determine the appropriate means of validating. That. So it, it's it's very open-ended and I think, you know, whatever you are able to do that that you can justify that demonstrates it's understandable to the patient. I think, you know, it's at the moment it's wide open. Yeah, what I've seen people what I've seen people do is like there was kind of two things I think proposed either in the the reference in the MDCG guidance or in the MDCG where they said you could do like a comprehension thing where you basically give it to a representative user group or you could also use these like um, readability or comprehension analysis tools. One of them I think is Flesh Kincaid, which is I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but um, Microsoft Word actually has that read like comprehension analysis in there. So you can run it on your actual document and it'll tell you what reading level it is. And so what I have seen most people is just using that tool to validate it mm -hmm. uh, versus actually doing like a comprehension analysis. And so I think that's what most people are doing right now. Nancy, have you seen anything else? Yeah, I think that's, Right, that's the starting point because that's really easy. It's easy to maintain. I can do it in yeah. Word. I can get it in. I can justify, right? I can write an explanation why that's adequate. And it really doesn't differ from that guidance. Our FDA has a reading comprehension guidance as well for over-the-counter drug products that's kind of interesting. It walks through the logic behind that. I'd probably extract some of the that language for my justification of why doing that readability score is adequate. Um, so that's one. I think where we're not quite tested yet, I don't think we're getting to the level of feedback yet where people have said, how did you validate this? Or that's not enough. Um, so just it's more of a preparation and getting that ready. Um, but I don't think it's really been tested yet. 
And I think the grade, I don't know, Amy, if you have an opinion on the grades that readability scores should comply with, because I think most people are targeting sixth to seventh grade, mm -hmm. but I think that can be very yeah. difficult. And even I think the guidance kind of gives you an out and saying it might not be possible to get all the way down here. So I think you try to get it down at least to the high school level, uh, but yeah. if possible, lower, I at least US, Europe, I know is a little bit different. Yeah, I think, you know, when you when you go back through the links and the guidance, I think we thought it could be like a 14 to 16 year old person, but not, you know, necessarily somebody who's completed their high school education, but maybe they've got so far with it. It's difficult to equate sort of European qualifications across and with the US qualifications. But yeah. um, about the validation methods, we've actually done both. So we've had some manufacturers that want the, the user group feedback and questionnaires, and then we've had others that just want the readability tool. And where we've done the user feedback ones, we've we've done the um, readability tool as well because it's reasonably easy to do, and so you're, you're getting a two-pronged approach there. And so I think the important, sorry, the important thing about the different, the advantage of doing the comprehension where you actually go to a user group is it actually says whether it works, whereas mm -hmm. the the readability or toll is just like how short the sentence is and how short the words is. It could be a completely nonsensical document though. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it just would meet that, like whatever the, you could game the system, right? And, yeah. and get it to give you the right score, but it might not be actually like comprehensible to your intended audience. So related question from the audience, talking about when it's written for medical professionals, since surgeons are experienced with communicating medical terminology and clinical information to patients, we have a surgeon assessing the readability of the lay language for the patients. Is this going to be an acceptable methodology? My guess would be no. Um, this, would this, is for, this would be for like a hip implant. Yeah, my guess would be no, because um, on that working group, one of my concerns in that working group is that there's all these requirements to effectively explain very complicated information in a way that's understandable to the user. And I thought, well, even when you're writing a CER, which is a much bigger document, there's opportunities for bias and misinterpretation and, and so on. And then you condense it down so it fits into the SSCP. And then you introduce another tier of potential distortion. And then you go and you take it another level and you make it understandable to make it understandable to the patient. I thought, well, once you're doing that, even if you don't want to, there's a, a risk that you're going to be sending mis misleading information. So I propose on a number of occasions in France, couldn't we just say, we have the same data set, um, you know, and and we recommend that you talk to your doctor about the, the, and it was like, no, that's not empowering the patient. It needs to be what a patient can understand. So I think if you then go back to this kind of, probably what that group would have perceived as a very paternalistic, is that the right word? Kind of thing where we're entrusting the doctor to know and to advise his patients and to know what his patient wants and what his patient can understand. I think that would be at odds with the philosophy behind that guidance. Uh, and to add to that, if the audience here, the intended audience, is layperson, why don't you draft something and get the feedback directly from the audience? Why go through that clinician who will probably, to your point, you know, introduce it an, an unintended bias? Because logistics, so, cost, you know, it's like a usability study. Mm. <laughs> horses for horses. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we have a lot of audience questions today. Next one. Uh, in 4.1, it is written 
The information on risks shall include quantitative data in a relation in time from clinical evaluation report. What does this mean, a relation to time from clinical evaluation report? Yeah, this is one of these things where I really regret not speaking up and saying that's going to be difficult for somebody to understand because I, I was very conscious of not criticizing people's English because there were, I think I was probably the only, no, there were two native English speakers in that group. Um, and, and you think, well, all of you speak English probably better than I do, so I shouldn't be. Anyway, never mind. Um, but what that is supposed to be saying is so that you can understand what the risk of something something happening to you is. So not, not just to say you've got a 5% chance of this happening, but you have a 5% chance of this happening to you within the first six months or whatever the right time bounding is. Or, you know, like if you were putting in the, an SSCP for patients, um, what survivorship is, it might be, say it was 95% survivorship, and in the patient SSCP, how you might word it is, you have a 5% chance of requiring a revision of your, I wouldn't use revision because that's not a patient-friendly word, but you have a 5% chance of having to have your hip replacement replaced within 10 years. If, if that kind of, they want the context of over what time period, not just overall incidence. Yeah, and I think, um... That there's obviously like perioperative complications and then there's like, you know, longer term complications. And we've even had notified bodies not necessarily associated with the SSCP, but with regard to our clinical evaluations, they have, we provided, for instance, like a revision rate or survivorship for an implant or um, you know, like, and so they have asked specifically, please provide over time what their survivorship is, not just your you know, survivorship that is all inclusive from one year to 10 years. They wanted, okay, show me the curve. And so I think that's what they're saying to some extent is what's, I don't think you have to maybe get detailed in showing curves necessarily, but I do think you need to at least provide them some sense of the timing of these risks. Because that goes into like the risk benefit analysis to some extent, because it's how long the risk is there. And then what's the duration of your benefit as well. And so they take those things into consideration. Basically, put whatever claims you're making into context. Otherwise, people can interpret it any which way they want. Again, you can see the, the common theme here. Be consistent, be clear, be transparent. That way it makes sense to the, to the diverse audience in this case. So we've had a few questions on this line. Is there going to be an expectation that the manufacturer will post the SSCPs online until the UNMED module is live? Oh. These are questions I always ask Nancy. <laughs> <laughs> this is one I would punt to Ibum. <laughs> okay. Or Amy. Well, I don't know if it's clear because you're meant to send it at the time you submit. I'm talking about for the first time you submit mm -hmm. your application, and then the notified body will then have to validate it and then post it to Udemy. So the key thing is for the unified body to have done their job because they've got to do that prior to posting all the certificates that would have been issued, you know. And remember, they don't just re uh, review the, or validate the SSCP in isolation. It's got to be done in conjunction with clinical documentation and all of its contents. I'm talking about risk management, PSU, PSUR reports, et cetera, et cetera. So that said, it will take for that time before I guess the manufacturer is then obligated to post this thing on your website. Amy, do you want to add to that? 
Yeah, this was discussed at the CIE because it's like, well, is Udemy going to be functional? Is it? And then there were there's a lot of debate about it, and everyone seemed to be in favour of somebody else being responsible for it. <laughs> so, like the uh, I think the the manufacturers were like, well, why can't the notified bodies store it and and put it, you know, on 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 their web page and make it because they've got to validate it. Which I consider the point of that. Um, but we were thinking. Mm, that's that's kind of a layer of responsibility that we don't really want to have kind of thing and i said why can't the commission set up a temporary udemed like just a, a, a controlled web page that you can do it and then everyone kind of liked that idea um but then i think the commission said well we'll have to discuss this further and then that was the point at which i left bsi so i've not been on that working group since so but then presumably there's going to be a decision that's communicated and there will be a clear guidance as to what we do in that in that um, transition period Yes, because this is one of the key deliverables coming out of the MDR. So I'd imagine the authorities will have to come and make a provision for this. Yeah, but I think it almost goes back to the notified body responsibility because they're the ones responsible for putting it in Udemed. So I wouldn't necessarily want to take that on as a manufacturer to create a website and maintain these in the interim. To me, okay. I've done my, I've followed the MDR by giving it to my notified body. <laughs> Yeah, but I suppose the other thing is that the notified body is not like necessarily responsible for having secure websites that can't be hacked by outside. You know what I mean? That's kind of like to recreate Udemeds is a little bit beyond a notified body responsibility. And there was another suggestion that was made, which was, can we just say that there's a little bit of a deviation until we have Udemed and the manufacturer keeps it on their own website with a link from their IFU? And that's, yes. and I don't, yeah, we'll see. We'll see if they issue some guidance on that. It would be handy. Yeah. Okay, next question. So far, what have you been hearing back from the notified bodies? I guess notified body folks here, what are you hearing from your colleagues and Nancy and John? You know, what kind of feedback are you getting on the ones we've written? You want to start, Nancy? Sure. So it, the recent ones that have been submitted, they are really following the guidance. So yep. we're hearing, you know, you don't have this section, this section, this section, you need it. Go back, fill it in as full as the guidance says. Um, the quantitative, we're hearing that, right? You have to show quantitative. You can't just make it qualitative. You can't make it too loose, right? Because we always like to try and bucket things and just give it, it's going to be less than this or more than that. But it, we're not, we're, see, we're hearing the request to be real specific and quantitative. Um, the other thing we've gotten is, and I think Amy mentioned this, the person responsible for regulatory compliance. Why hasn't that person signed this document? So they really want that accountability of the credentials and the signature associated with it. Um, so it, you know, it's pretty tight. And I, my my advice is follow the guidance if you want it to go through really quick. And in, in fairness to our clients, you know, I think it made sense to push the limits on the first ones they sent, right? And see see what kind of feedback they would get since they were setting the standard. But the yeah. notified bodies came back and said, follow the guidance, right? Yeah, and I think though, to the point, the reason you do that, because you are following the regulation. So if you mm -hmm. could technically check off, right? There was some question about, could the notified body really hold you to that? Or would they have to go back and cite it against the, the regulation? Um, and- But, but, but Nancy, uh, remember, the regulation, maybe the, law, the regulation is the law, but it does not cover all the permutations. 
which is why the guidance then gives you additional information. Guidances mm -hmm. should be considered as help. <laughs> you know, um, otherwise you'll fall foul. And to, to Lisa's point, yes, you could take a chance, but uh, could that possibly delay your time to get your device on the market? Mm -hmm. So that's what you've got to weigh up, you know, because typically you do the first one, mm -hmm. If successful, use that as a template for all your subsequent uh, SSCP mm -hmm. reports. And if it doesn't work, you don't have to go back and revamp that template. So these are the sort of um, uh, calculations a manufacturer will have to make. My advice would be, if there's a guidance document, please, please, please follow it. <laughs> the other thing is, I think, you know, we get a lot of, um, well, in the notified bodies, we just get, but it's just guidance. Well, how can you hold this to, to it's just guidance? And the, the notified body interpretation of that, and this, you know, it comes comes cascaded, cascaded down from the top, is the guidance represents best practice um, and it's state of the art. And so they normally interpret that in terms of you are not meeting the state of the art because you're not applying the state of the art best practice gui guidance. So you can't really just ignore guidance and say, well, it's not, you know, word for word in, in the regulation. Um, you need to really apply it because that's the interpretation of what it's supposed to mean. Yeah. Let's wrap up today, think, you know. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, Nan. Yeah, no, I, I think, right, you hate to set the bar. If you take your very best product mm -hmm. with your best clinical data and you write that SSCP, you know, you do kind of set the bar that that's what you're going to provide for all your products. And so, you know, it's kind of interesting, the strategy. Some companies are going in with their best first and some are going in with, let me pull this one that I don't really care as much about. <laughs> Right, and I'm going to put that one in first and take a little bit of a risk by not giving too much. Yep, makes sense. So let's wrap up today talking about our best practices since we didn't get this far, you know, from all the ones we've done so far. Um, what kind of best practices have you seen that you think would be helpful to share? Um, who wants to start? I'll, I mean, I can start quickly. I don't. I don't sure. think it anything going to be particularly enlightening for anybody. Like we've said, follow the guidance, review the guidance, make sure you're meeting those, the requirements that they're asking for. Uh, just generally make sure it aligns with your clinical evaluation. So you want to make sure you have your benefits list in your clinical evaluation, your specific and measurable outcomes in there, and then any PMCF that you're doing and any analysis you're doing on that data will tie back to all that, because I think that'll make it a little bit easier for you to put your outcomes in your SSCP and the data in there. And um, I think that's really it at this stage. <laughs> you know, I think best practices will be determined as time goes on, right? I'll, I'll add one more point. Mm -hmm. um, think about language requirements as well and translations thereof, because, I mean, this guidance document does say what you got to do. If your master SSCP is being validated in a language other than English, you've got to provide the English version. You've got to upload that as well. You know, so be aware of all those language requirements because not all 27 member states speak English. In fact, it's going to be interesting now that the UK uh, is not going to be it's no more going to be part of the EU. So. Presumably that requirement still holds. I don't know, Amy. Have you heard any word about that? Um, about the, the, I think they're saying, yeah, it's going to be Irish English now. No, literally. So it will be Irish English. Oh my goodness. You don't have all to right. change all the working languages of all the working groups. So. 
The other thing I would say is, is start with really good technical documentation for all that administrative stuff. So if you can have a template or a form that everybody uses in every document that has the same product name, the same description of it, all that, who's the manufacturer, all that information, you know, it's amazing, right? Like you think, oh, sure, I know my product name, but it's the number of documents we see with variations of a product name is incredible. <laughs> Everybody has their own little spin on it. It's changed. Start with those fundamentals that mm -hmm. aren't going to change and make it consistent away. <laughs> the only thing I'd add to, to that is really about really keeping focused on the fact that this is primarily a communication document. It's not about quoting all kinds of standards and regulations and things like that. And the thing I, I think I've, I've noticed is that Writing for laypersons is a real skill in itself, communicating with people who aren't from an expert audience. And, you know, if you've been used to writing for highly technical and clinical people in the past, actually kind of realigning your thinking processes to think, well, how would a patient understand this is, is actually a, a skill that we we'll probably need to develop or, you know, across the board. Yeah, very good point. Well, thanks, everybody. That was super helpful. I think we could have a whole webinar on that topic. There were so many questions we didn't even get to. So we'll definitely do this again. Thanks.